Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. And I'm Anne Friedman. I am very excited about today's episode. I talked to friend of the pod, Alexis Ko, who is undoubtedly my favorite herstorian. She wrote this great um, narrative history book called Alice and Frida Forever. If you have not read it, you should probably read it before the movie comes out. The movie will be coming out. And uh, she is now the host of this podcast called No Man's Land. The vacation treating you right? You know what? This is pre-recorded, so I'm just going to guess yes. Yes. Um, when does vacation not treat me or you or anyone right? Like, honestly. When um, we're foolish enough to work during it, so I'm really glad that you're completely offline. You know, thank you for your support. Honestly, your direct support in enabling this vacation. <laughs> I am so into this. I am very excited about today's episode. Tell me. I talked to friend of the pod, Alexis Ko, who is um, undoubtedly my favorite herstorian. She wrote this great narrative history book called Alice and Frida Forever. If you have not read it, you should probably read it before the movie comes out. The movie will be coming out. Alexis is also curating the ACLU's Centennial. So all of the exhibitions around the country will be her work. That's pretty cool. And uh, she is now the host of this podcast called No Man's Land. She was a co-host of a podcast that I recommend to people all the time. Presidents are people too. If you care about history, especially women's history, if you like smart women commenting on everything, Alexis is the person to follow across all platforms. I mean, I'm so glad you talked to her. Like that is the best setup that any guest could ever hope for. So here's Alexis. We talk about, you know, some like Thanksgiving feels and a lot of just forgotten women's history and why, like, why it's so important to, to know these stories. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Amina. Thanks for coming on Call Your Girlfriend today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad that you're here for like many reasons because you wear many, many, many hats. So can you give the people at home like kind of an abbreviated bio? I'm a historian and I guess I work across all mediums. So this year has been interesting. I'm, um, I launched the podcast for The Wing, No Man's Land, which I write and host. Um, I am producing a series with Doris Corns Goodwin for the History Channel. I turned in the first draft of my feminist biography on George Washington. Can you tell people what it's called? Because it's amazing. You never forget your first. <laughs> and I'm curating the ACLU's um, nationwide centennial exhibitions. Um, you have too many jobs, as we have discussed. Agreed. Well, okay. So let's start with the podcast because I started listening to it and it is very, very, very good. And you excavate a lot of new history that we did not know about or that we completely misunderstood. I've never met history that I'm satisfied with. And that's that's definitely a problem. And so as I approached certainly the first episode on Queenie, Stephanie St. Clair, as soon as I started looking into the sources, I mean, you don't take anything as fact. You always look into the sources. 
I just found things were wrong. They were just completely incorrect, whether it was where she was buried, who she was married to, the years that she had arrived at, you know, in America, where she came from. And some of it is her own master laying of um, misinformation. And some of it is just bad history. But with women's history, often there's just never enough time. It's always this game of catch up. And that's no excuse to, to you know, sort of do it halfway. Yeah, so Stephanie St. Clair, who is also known as Queenie, is this character that I uh, certainly like did not know about until you talked to me about her. And I was so shocked at how um, so much information about her life was still available, you know, even though she was not somebody who has been like taught in the history books or, um, you know, or even in like people who are like very steeped in New York history, for example, like might not know about and so I'm wondering if you could talk about how, like, how you encountered her the first time. I found her, first of all, don't sleep on academic press books. They're so good. You know this. I'm always giving them to you. <laughs> 100%. They're so good. They're so precise and so good. And they have the best stories. Um, and, and this was one where I had been interested in the work of Dr. LaShawn Harris, who's a professor in Michigan. And I saw that she had a new book on sex workers, numbers runners. And I found this chapter on Queenie in it. And I thought, this is so interesting. Why is it just a chapter? Um, and then realize that while there was a lot, it's just not the sort of history. Like, you have to spend a lot of time. You have to have resources. You have to be sort of a really creative researcher in order to go a little bit further with it. And so that's what I did. I really utilized being in New York. It's a New York story. She's from Harlem. She's a numbers runner there, originally from the West Indies. And I just kept pulling everything that I could think of. So every time I hit a dead end, I thought, okay, I, I can't figure out where she's living, but maybe housing records have something. And the housing records, once I really like studied them, were really revealing. And then, you know, I'd go to naturalization records and then called every cemetery in Harlem and just sort of kept going. And eventually I would find what I was looking for, but it's really tireless work. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is kind of the work I think that you have been engaged in in a long time, right? Is really reteaching. It's both like teaching and reteaching and teaching people to unlearn a lot of things that they have, they, they think they know about women's history. So for example, another, uh, another episode that you have deals with Sylvia Plath. And I will be very honest that I know the bare minimum about Sylvia Plath. Like I've never even read Bell Jar. Um, you know, it's, it's not in my aesthetic uh, of uh, like things that I care about. And even then, like, the idea of who Sylvia Plath is so ingrained in my head as this, like, one-dimensional person. And you do, in the second episode of No Man's Land, you do all of this work to, to actually show that, uh, you know, that story is not true, the story that we know. But don't you think that's because she's been presented as a phase you're supposed to have in college. And so if you don't go through that phase, it's like, well, your opportunity to read Sylvia Plath is sort of passed. 100%. I was like, I am not like this moody, broody. There's also something that is like very, uh, I would say like inherently like white college culture about it that I was not interested in exploring. And, uh, you know, like shame on me because Turns out Sylvia Plath is a, you know, is like a very interesting person and not for her 
not for the way that her life ended or not for who she was married to, for example, or who she was in a relationship with. But it's definitely one of these stories you think you know her, you think you know what she's about. As soon as you start looking into it, you think this this doesn't match up with anything I know about a suicidal, depressive personality. She worked too hard. Those were episodes. Um, and so immediately I saw that and then also benefited from the fact that like history is constantly changing. So a couple years ago, there was a discovery in an addict this is always just like a gift. I got so excited when I read, even if it's unrelated to my research, I'm like, someone out there is going, yes. And um, there are these letters to her psychiatrist that told us so much information about the aftermath of Ted Hughes. So we imagined Sylvia Plath as Gwyneth Paltrow in that terrible movie that actually didn't license any of her work. So if you like rewatch it, you'll see it has nothing to do so with her. So they're ripping the phone out and all of that stuff is not real. I mean, she was obviously <laughs> upset, but she never looked like that. She was really proud of her appearance, which is another thing you don't associate with people who are severely depressed. Um, she had platinum blonde hair, which people really didn't do at that time. And she dressed to the nines. And when Ted Hughes had an affair, when she discovered it, yes, she got upset. But she also, she found his letters about the woman who he was eventually going to leave her for. And the first thing she wrote to her psychiatrist was, these are really well written. Ah! And that's shocking and it's really interesting. It shows this detachment. Um, and it shows also her, she's not coming from this place of anger or like she's sort of realistic about who he is and she always was. But then when she actually kicks him out, he doesn't leave. She kicks him out. She drops him off at the train station and she comes back and she says, I'm so excited. I can finally work and everything looks good. And what happens as she moves to London, like all this time passes between when he leaves and when she commits suicide. And it it really isn't because of a man. It's because of a mental um, illness. It's because of this proclivity in an earlier um, episode in her life. And just learning that and also traveling upstate to talk to her best friends from Smith, going to Smith College and looking through all her materials, all of that is so important to crafting this story about who she really was. You know, the thing that I, whenever I have these conversations with you that I'm so struck by is that the work of, learning who the women are that came before us one is like tireless work but it is also work that we have to do in order to understand this moment that we're in and you know and obviously like I understand how the forces of patriarchy and sexism work so that we don't know these women's stories but it is like on a large level it's also very concerning we just don't know them at all and so I'm just curious about how if this was something that like you knew when, when you decided that you were going to be a historian, if it's something that you knew you were going to do, or if it is, you know, you're always like, oh, I have to do my work and then I have to undo the work of all these other men who also came before me. I think, well, it, it often feels like that. I think initially I just liked public engagement. And so when I was in grad school, I had an internship at the Brooklyn Historical Society. And I found that I enjoyed that so much more than teaching undergrads who are sort of like texting under the table. I don't like obligatory history. I really want people to enjoy it, but that's on me. If history is boring, it's the historian's fault. And then, you know, I left academia to be a curator at the New York Public Library. So all of this is very much about public engagement. So it's um, more about figuring out, okay, this doesn't read well. It's not engaging. There's something missing from this. You know, people of color and women exist, and that just doesn't seem to have occurred to the historian. And so there's... Never does. Never does. <laughs> no. And so that's how it started. And then 
I just often find that there's a lot of fault or in this, either women have been ignored or in the rush to insert them in the narrative, we've missed a lot. So in the third episode, Ida B. Wells, you know, there are all these comprehensive biographies and all these posts, you know, and like overlooked in the times about her, but we miss like moments of genius. And so I really focused just narrowly on 1892, a six month span when a 29 year old Ida B. Wells has a moment of genius. I think young women don't just want to know what happened, but how it happened, because that's a part of learning about someone is how their, their mind works and how they engage with the world. So I want to know how did she become the foremost advocate for anti-lynching. And it's because of a personal experience. And it's because she set out to understand it. And in that process of investigating, discovered a whole new world. I mean, that episode is really, um, hearing you talk about that episode was really fascinating because again, like Ida B. Wells, somebody who is, you know, has is being like re-excavated and like and studied, but that connection that, you know, I won't spoiler alert it for, like, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. Uh, you should listen to it. But that experience of like, oh, it's rooted in a personal experience. It was also like an assumption that a lot of people had made and that she she sought to correct and that changed the face of the world, you know, and reduced lynching and and also like blaze a new path for, for women reporters everywhere. And she's inspiring in so many different ways. And that's an example of a story that took years in some ways for me to find my way in. I spent a lot of time in Memphis because I wrote a book about Memphis, Alice and Frida Forever. And when I was there, because I'd spend these large amounts of time, um, and it's the same year, 1892, um, Alice Mitchell is actually in jail with Thomas Moss and Ida B. Wells' friends who were lynched. And so that brought it to my attention, this idea that this like well-to-do white lady who was being tried not for insanity when she committed murder was in a jail with men who were being tried for simply starting a business that charged people of color fair prices. And I thought about that story, it just sort of sat with me for years. And I thought, you know, we need to tell this very specific story. And I, I always have to find the right medium. I work across all these mediums because a story is not necessarily right in print. It maybe needs to be told in audio. Maybe it needs to be TV or film. Um, whatever gets the public to really see the point. Um, you've made, you also made some like very, uh, you know, like you made some really inclusive choices when it comes to the first season of No Man's Land. Like it, I'm just like, whatever your identity is, there's something in here <laughs> for you, which, you know, I, um, I always trust that you will do that. But also, I know that that's hard work. Like it's very hard work to say we're making a season of one thing and we are going to try to be as inclusive as possible and we're going to try to touch on as many experiences as possible. Can you talk a little bit about how like that decision making happens? I think a big part of that decision making process is, you know, I set out to do that. I really set out to be as diverse as possible and to think who has been excluded from the narrative, who has been misunderstood within the narrative. Um, and of course, we're talking about the way that men have crafted history and what they've you know, allowed to be in textbooks and what they haven't. And at the same time, as you know, I never feel like I've done enough. I never feel like I've been inclusive enough. And so I think you just have to f 
to constantly feel like you're working towards a goal but never quite feel like you're there. So right now we're crafting um, an episode on social clubs and that's so important to me because it's how I came to the wing a year before it opened. It's how Audrey and Lauren, the co-founders, you know, found me because I was interested in this. And I really want to dismantle this idea that there are these fancy clubs, white gloves, ladies who lunch, um, legacies, everyone has uh, disposable income because they're not like women's clubs throughout the country are responsible for major um, civic programs. They literally built roads out west during expansion. They um, are responsible for at least 70 to 80 percent of the library system. Ida B. Wells, of course, was in like 20, half of them bearing her own name. Japanese internment camps had social clubs. I mean, that's the most, that was the most like radical thing that I like learned from you like speaking about this, because I think that even in this you know, we like we've had a lot of conversations about the wing and people have a lot of conversations about the wing here, uh, you know, especially in New York and in all the cities that they're in. And there is still this like idea that it is a very white space or that it is a very white idea. And that's just not true. And it's also historically not true. So hearing you talk about, you know, like women's clubs during Japanese internment was something that um had not even occurred to me, but you know, that civic mindedness has just like, that has run through our like historical DNA for a long time. And so much of that is based on early reactions to social clubs. So Grover Cleveland, a president in the Ladies Home Journal, you know, disparaged women's social clubs and said, there's, there's, you know, nothing more dangerous to a woman's mind. And, <laughs> and the editor, <laughs> yeah. Than hanging out at a women's club? Ugh. Because men are scared by women gathering, and they always have been. In the beginning, in the 1860s, these social clubs were white. But, you know, history is long, so these things can change over time. So cirrhosis, which is, you know, uptown and now definitely all the stereotypes, started out with women who were barred from seeing Charles Dickens speak. And they wanted a space in which the six women writers in 1868 could get together and talk to each other instead of just having one, you know, kind male editor, one progressive husband. They wanted a community. And then over time, it became something really different. And, you know, then we see social clubs changing. Women of color start social clubs. It's really important to enfranchisement, to suffrage, you name it, to every every political movement. And then in the 70s, we see people like the Jane Club out of Chicago, keeping a network of abortion providers. And then they sort of fall out of style, rooted in the initial rejection of social clubs. There is this idea that like, women, why do they need these spaces? Oh, it's a sorority, when it's really nothing of the sort. You've been really good about connecting, you know, the everything that happened in social clubs with the library system, for example, and for, um, you know, like really pushing forward really like big institutional ideas that have lived beyond the, the women's clubs. And again, like women's clubs don't get no credit for that. Even equal pay. I mean, there is this, the first business women's club in New York conducted one of the first studies about women's wages. And the first line like got me immediately. I remember seeing it six years ago when this was just like a side interest. And I always try to look away from this. And think, <laughs> like another thing I'm going to get excited about. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, almost every side interest that I've had has kind of paid off. Like my first book was a side interest in grad school. I thought I can't study this. I won't be taken seriously. And now, you know, it's, it's a huge part of my life. But, um, you know, they open up with saying, stop justifying giving women unequal pay by saying it's pin money. Pin money is money to go to the movies, to, the it's to, to buy a hat. 
No, these women maybe don't want to get married. Their husbands have left them. They've been widowed. They're off fighting in a war. They need money to support their families just like a man does. And what year was that? This was in the 1890s. Well, <laughs> you're trying to tell me I didn't invent equal pay <laughs> two weeks ago on my Instagram? That is shocking. This is the kind of stuff that you always suspect, but you don't, you know, like if you're a civilian like me and all you have is Wikipedia University, you, uh, uh, you know, like you my know, nemesis, your nemesis. I don't know how to tell you this. I went to grad school at Wikipedia University, <laughs> so it just always feels like there are so few resources. I want to talk about Alice and Frida, the book that you wrote and also that you like you've been like alluding to for a while. I um I didn't realize that that it was a side interest that you had had. And I mean, it's like going to be a movie, so it has obviously paid off, but also has done like for me at least like brought into focus and consciousness so much on a human level what it was to be, you know, like a queer person in this specific time in history and connected the dots like so much to like many other, you know, like experiences that you can have. And so I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. That story keeps changing for me in so many ways. The protagonist, um, Alice, who's 19, and Frederica Ward, her her same-sex fiance, who's 17, why are they an anecdotal opening? And then it gets into this speak that nobody, you know, everyone glazes over. This is such a great story, a conduit, a sort of, you know, definitely a way to sort of fool people into thinking about modernity at the turn of the century and white man's apprehensions. And also this idea of sexuality and what it means to love someone else when you don't have a word for it, because lesbianism is 40 years into the future. That story, you know, I told from the beginning as much as I could because there are never as many primary sources on women as there are on men. So it does take far more sleuthing, which is why I think I've I've gotten better at, at that. It's much, much harder than my other interest in presidential history and political history because there's a lot there. There's too much. But then now I'm focused in one of the episodes on the end of that story, this idea that a doctor there, Dr. Frank Sim, wrote the first medical report in which he said, okay, we have this test case in which obviously if a woman loves another woman, it's going to drive her insane and it's going to make her violent. So we need to classify this as a mental illness. And then that is the origin story for so much prejudice and for eventually it being included in the DSM in the Diagnostic and Statistical List of Mental Illnesses, that it is in fact a mental illness. And it takes so long. It takes a hundred years and activists and doctors and all sorts of people to get it eradicated. And that struggle I found so moving. And so I just, what's really interesting about history is not only does it change as new information comes out, but that your relationship with it over time changes and you realize different points of the story are compelling to you at different moments in your life. Anything that young 
women or and women ultimately care about is important because that's a message that we we hear over and over again like oh skincare no kardashians no even though we're on the outs with the kardashians right now but that's another episode of this podcast um you know but like generally those things like tend to not get seen as very serious did you have um did you have any kind of fear when you started writing this or kind of apprehension when you started going down this path that you were, and especially because you left academia, that your work would not be taken seriously? I didn't fear that. And I just left thinking like, oh my God, this is, this is everything's going to be so small. No one's going to benefit from this work. It's not going to cause any sort of conversation. And when I say start a conversation, it's not like I want people to like sit down and change the tenor of their dinner parties. <laughs> I want the history that I tell to be so fun that when you go to a cocktail party, you turn around and you're like, I learned this crazy thing about Ida B. Wells. That's um, what I want. I, the kinds of dinner parties you <laughs> go to are the kinds of dinner parties I aspire to. Um, one day go to. Uh, <laughs> um, why, uh, why did you decide to write a book on George Washington, the most written about <laughs> president? He, well, I think he's third, actually. I think it's Lincoln, what? then FDR, then Washington. See, I'm learning something new right now. Penguin is still confirming this. My editor just told me this, but I might be the only woman to write a comprehensive biography of George Washington in the last 200 years. That's wild. I didn't know that when I took this on. And certainly there are times where I think, like, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Who decides to write a feminist biography of George Washington? And it's really not feminist. It's just a normal approach as, as I would approach anything else, any other subject. So it's feminist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's inclusive, which I guess means, you well, know, feminist, um, yes. radically feminist. Um, and so I, you know, I'm a presidential historian as well. And I, um, I had a, a podcast at Audible called uh, Presidents Are People Too that were on for uh, three or four seasons and covered all the presidents. And I felt like every biography I read, I could get a good sense of who he was. You know, there were definitely limitations and criticisms I had. But with George Washington, never. There was always so much um, praise of him and his body and his success. And yet the the biographies all start out the same. They say he's too marbled to be real. And I think, okay, well, that's probably because all you do is is praise him the whole time. <laughs> and they don't. It's the same story over and over again. That was the other weird thing is there was no um, iterations. There's been no realizations. And there has been um, something called documentary editing within the primary sources around the presidents, which is like the gift to historians and, again, does not really exist with women's history. As soon as I started looking into it, of course, I found like 10 things that were wrong by the great Ron Chernow, who, by the way, women's historians, my favorite dance partners, um, literally, that's not a joke, they are really fun at dance parties, they call him he with a capital H. And I, you know, and you, I took you to the um, Grant biography uh, lecture. You took me to a, to a Ron Chernow Grant biography lecture, and it was something, it was, it was, so, it was quite something. It was a sea of white people white men, mostly older, and he was just hating on Julia Grant the entire time. Everything that happened was her fault. And that's what I also find throughout his biographies. It's not just that he's sexist and that a lot of, and that they get so distracted by Washington's physique. We all know he was great. We don't need to go on and on about it. I think this is an accepted thing as far as his body. There are other things he was definitely terrible about. 
But um, I noticed that he kept defaulting to this really negative view on women. And it's not just that that's bad, which obviously it is. It's that if you approach one thing in that way, I have to question how you approach everything because it means that you're biased and it means that you're missing things. And sure enough, he's missing things. He's completely conflating primary sources. He's misquoting. I mean, talk about failing upwards. (laughs) I mean, yeah, this is... Happens in every industry. It just so happens that in your, you know, like your corner of the world, it has huge consequences on how people think that they know the world and that they know history. What is a thing in your Washington book that you think, uh, you know, like the debt historians have missed? They have all complained about George Washington's mom quite a bit. Um, And they... Chernow, oh, yeah, she's a nag. Yeah. Uh, that lady. And Chernow calls her crusty, which I think is sort of unconscionable. I would never call someone in history crusty. I think that's <laughs> insane. And that's just an example of the kind of words that he uses with women. And he, he talks about her, for example, that she was difficult, that she was exacting with finances, that she rode horses too much, that she did all these things. Those are all the things that George Washington is praised for for being exacting, for keeping these records, for being a great horseman. She's also a great dancer. He's praised for being a great dancer. There's So that's what I mean. Like, it blinds them, and they, they just approach everything in a biased way. And it, and it made me feel like, honestly, sort of, shit, like, I've got to do this. And I do feel like if I don't do this, whether it's George Washington, whether it's Ida B. Wells, whether it's Sylvia Plath, Alice and Frida, that I am somehow complicit in this perpetuating of a very patriarchal approach to history. Is there like a secret club of lady historians and you all divide out the work and you go, okay, here's here's everything that is bad and we have our work to do, but here the, here's the stuff, here's the slack we're going to pick up. No, I wish more um, women historians would take on presidential history. I can't. There are too many. I can't do them all. <laughs> um, I, I know there's not. I, sometimes it feels a little bit lonely. I have gotten uh, really close with, with Doris Goodwin over the last six months, um, and it's been kind of amazing. And I realized she, she was all alone for a long time. You and Notorious DKG are... Uh, <laughs> That's 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 what I call her, at least. Um, are working on a TV project together? Yes. Can you yes. talk about it, George? It's sort of funny. So there are um, three male writers who I was in a writer's room, but otherwise it's really women. <laughs> I'm a producer. She's the executive producer. It's a three-part series, and it's coming to history. It's very different, even in the test shoot, which I I wrote a good portion of and I picked you know which boat to use I got a woman in um in most of the and she sort of steals the show in an actual battle scene because she existed and like if you want to talk about heroicism it's a woman during the American Revolution her husband is murdered in front of her she does not hesitate to man the cannon and she's so good that the British soldiers train their field cannons on her and she doesn't stop until like her shoulder is blasted out her chin is displaced um and she's the only woman she goes by molly pitcher that's sort of the general term for her which shows you you know sort of how she's been treated in history that 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 she's just referred to as a woman who brings water that's what a molly pitcher is um she's the only woman she was the first woman to receive a military pension she's the only woman buried at west point and she's in there with george washington stealing the show 
So the book is out in 2020. We'll obviously talk about it before then. The TV show is out. 2020. Almost everything is in 2020 except for the podcast. I love this. 2020, uh, your presidential year. Yeah. <laughs> like the election. Uh, yeah. It's also Thanksgiving week this week. Um, today is the Friday after Thanksgiving, or this is when people will hear it. Thanksgiving is a very, uh, you know, like talk about historical lies <laughs> and just nonsense. Um, what's like one thing you wish people would know about Thanksgiving, like once and for all? Well, there's a silly thing and then there's, you know, a depressing thing, okay. of course. Okay, As let's do both. <laughs> well, I don't know if everyone knows that you bake really excellent pies, but they would not be a part of Thanksgiving because the pilgrims had gone through all their sugar. What? So, there were no pies at Thanksgiving? No. And so there, I mean, it's sort of the basic also, story. thank you for your pie compliment. Most people don't know this about me. So Make really you. good pies <laughs> and like homemade crust. The Thanksgiving story is, is sort of true. You know, the Plymouth colony was struggling. The corn had yielded because Indians, first people, had taught them how to farm. But the celebratory dinner had more to do with like venison, which you don't see on the table, wild turkeys because they were plentiful. Um, these pigeons that are now extinct, vegetarians trigger <laughs> trigger warning, <laughs> where, um, you know, colonists like early settlers will say that they um, could shoot into the air and t- 200 pigeons would fall down. Uh. So like they were eating a lot of pigeons and yes, there was corn as well. Um, that was like the big to do. But the Native American people that they invited to share in this bounty, first of all, they brought the good meat, if you will. They brought five deer. So that was like, that's never talked about. And then 50 years later, the second generation of all the people who attended this dinner are being massacred by the second generation of these settlers. <sighs> this is what settlers always do. Absolutely. And what's amazing is um, the justification still. This is, again, white men history. So I was in this documentary um, on the History Channel last year called Frontiersmen. And I dared to say the truth about William Henry Harrison. I know everyone's favorite president, <laughs> who they remember constantly was president, and his grandson, Benjamin Harrison, was also I'm president. Like, I'm Googling this right now. <laughs> the, the forgotten about presidential dynasty. Um, but But in fact, his early career was defined as basically an Indian hunter. He was in the military and his job was to settle areas that had strong Indian populations um, that were being obliterated. And so, you know, I said, like, I don't know if he had like a personal vendetta against Native Americans, but his his military career is defined by it. And the the names that I've been called on Twitter for saying that, like, like some of the... I don't know if we can. Someone the other day was like, "How dare you? Where would we be without that land, you cunt?" Oh wow! Oh yeah, you can one. You can definitely say "cunt" on CYG, but also wow. And this is just for for stating the historical record on the History Channel, which you know is just trying to include more women. It's one fleeting sentence, and I have gotten like hundreds of responses like that. I've gotten emails. Um, and, and it's that I dare to say it, that I dare to be a woman, a woman who knows history. Um, it's sort of incredible. Yeah, I mean, and it's because it's so ingrained in our lizard brain that this is, you know, this is this is how we have freedom and this is how we have America and America is amazing. And and that amazingness means that people had to be murdered, you know, and 
and that white people settling land is like cool. But why can't we hold those two things at once? Why can't we understand that America got land and expanded and tell the story of westward expansion that's usually so romanticized and also understand how that happened? That doesn't seem to be at odds with to me. I mean, because I have always felt, and maybe like I'm the naive one, but I feel that um, if people are presented with that information consistently, that that is a truth that they can hold. But when it's not in our textbooks, when it is not in our media, or our media definitely works towards like just doing very simplistic, un- unnuanced things, it's harder to have people unlearn things, you know, later that they've known than actually just tell the consistent truth of what something is all along. And so I, you know, not to say that I like sympathize with like assholes, but I understand why they don't know. And I think that a lot of times it also scares me that they will never, you know, like they will never unlearn it because their whole lives we've like, I'm like, this is how we get fake news narratives, right? Because people think that now you're trying to, you know, you're trying to like pull a fast one on them. And it's like, no, you were just, you just been lied to since the beginning. And also this is how people stay in power is by telling these like romantic stories about who they are and where they come from. But that's like one of these fundamental things about approaching history, about approaching any situation that you're, that you encounter is your first reaction shouldn't be, well, this is against everything I've ever known. So I must automatically reject it. It should, it should be like, oh, this is new information. How do I reconcile it with what I know? And so it is very much fear-based when people react that way. And that is bizarre to me and does account for so much of what we see in the world and certainly in our nation today that's divisive. But also, you know, when George Washington left the presidency after the second term, it's because he was like, factionalism is terrible. It's partisanship is going to ruin the country. So there's also something really comforting to knowing that things were never okay. So the fact that they're not now, yes, it has real consequences for generations, but Honestly, this romanticized idea, it's never been true. Are you seeing any kind of trend or of, you know, I don't know, like historical correction that is giving you a little bit of hope in this time that we're moving in a positive direction? Yeah, I think that there has been a sort of commercialization of feminism happening. And I think the fact that the first podcast season that The Wing put out is women's history. And it's the kind of history that I would tell in any publication I've written for. I would I would tell this history in The New Yorker, in The New York Times, in The New Republic, anything that starts with new, um, any of these places, that it exists here in podcast form for wing members, but beyond, that it's also free. There's no paywall. To me, that's really encouraging. And um, it's encouraging for us. It's encouraging for our conversations that we could be having. Um, and for where we can go as a country. Alexis, you are the best. Uh, Thank you for coming on Call Your Girlfriend today. Uh, No Man's Land is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn about for the first time or more about Ida Bay Wells, Ida B. Wells. I always say Ida Bay Wells because I'm a black teen. Um, You know, Anna Mendieta. Sylvia Plath. The idea of same-sex love, how it was criminalized, queenie, social clubs. Yes. On a personal note, I just, I'm so happy that you do this work and that it is, um, it's available and it's accessible. And, 
you know, and I hope that over the years it gets less lonely because there are more people who come to this with you. And uh, it's like always such a pleasure. Thank you. Wow. I wish I learned history from Alexis, like from day one in in elementary school. (laughs) Uh, She's the best. She's the absolute, absolute best. Um, I'm so glad that we pre-recorded this, Anne. And uh, I hope that when you listen to this, you know just like how much uh, I love you. And I'm so happy that you are enjoying the sun somewhere. So good for you. Um, Thank you for interviewing Alexis. She is the best. Thanks to Alexis for being on this podcast. And uh, I will see you on the internet. See you so soon, boo-boo. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, right. Thanksgiving. (laughs) Or happy happy the day after Thanksgiving. (laughs) Happy Indigenous Peoples Day, too. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcast, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sibley. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>